Getting an update now on the latest into the investigation of that deadly boat fire. So I'd like to introduce uh, Sheriff Brown up to the podium to begin. Thank you, Lieutenant Rainey. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen of the press, for being here today. We have an update for you, and I want to preface these remarks as I did uh, the last press briefing uh, by recognizing that much of the information that we're about to disclose and to discuss is going to be painful and difficult for the family members of those who were lost in this terrible tragedy. And we want you to know that you're still in our hearts. Our condolences go out to you. And as painful and difficult as this is, we hope that you will find some measure of comfort in some of the information that we have for you today. The search and recovery operation uh, is continuing, and we have had an incredible response to our mutual aid request for assistance in this search and rescue uh, and subsequent search and recovery operation. Dive teams and marine units from across the state, as well as our federal partners and state partners, have assisted in this effort. They have brought resources as well as technical expertise to the scene. We are in our fifth day now of this incident, and today we will have divers from the Sheriff's Dive Team, the FBI, and the National Park Service in the water once again. Their top priority today is the recovery of the remaining victim that is still outstanding, as well as evidence recovery for the ongoing investigation of the cause and origin of this fire. Today, the salvage operation of the vessel, the uh, conception, is underway, and Captain Rochester will share more detail about that in a moment. As the vessel is moved during the operation, uh, our divers will search the area that has heretofore been inaccessible to them, as well as search, again, the vessel itself for the last victim. The ATF National Response Team has arrived and will be assisting as well. I'd like to thank uh, ATFE Los Angeles Special Agent in Charge Carlos Canino, who will speak uh, later in this news conference to share how his office and this special team will be assisting in this investigation. From the standpoint of the coroner's office, so far the sheriff's coroner's office has received a total of 33 of the 34 victims from the conception. Due to the intense fire that occurred on the vessel, all of the recovered remains have suffered varying degrees of fire damage, which requires DNA analysis to confirm the identities of the victims. For the past several days, the coroner's office and sheriff's investigators have worked diligently to both positively identify victims, to obtain buccal swabs for uh, sample comparison purposes in the DNA process, and to notify the next of kin. I want to share with you the process so that you have a better understanding of the monumental task that our investigators have been facing. When this incident began, our office was presented with a manifest, uh, a list of passengers who were on the vessel, names only, with no other supporting documentation or details immediately available. As we were able to obtain more information through the Family Assistance Center, through the call center, and through other investigative means, 
we have been able to contact the family and loved ones of the passengers. As of this morning, I am happy to report that we have connected with family members for all 34 victims. The last family to be contacted was the mother of one of the victims who lives in Japan. As the DNA identification process requires, we have obtained buccal swab samples from families as a result of the assistance of the FBI field offices from throughout the United States and abroad. To give you an idea of the scope of this effort, the FBI connected with one family in Singapore and another family flew into Santa Barbara yesterday from India. We have been assisted by a host of allied local, state, and federal colleagues. Far too many for me to name individually at this press briefing. But I do want to give special thanks to Sacramento County Coroner Kimberly Jin, who immediately responded to our request for assistance with the ANDE, the A-N-D-E, Rapid DNA System, technology that her office uh, is trained in and used during the campfires uh, subsequent coroner's investigation. Her staff, as well as support from the Andy Corporation, who brought a second rapid DNA system to us from their offices in Colorado, has been invaluable in the process of rapidly identifying victims, allowing us to bring some measure of solace to some of the loved ones. The Los Angeles County Medical Examiner's Office has been a tremendous help with the coroner's investigative process as well, and I just want to give a special thanks to all of them and to all of our coroner staff and our divers who have been engaged in this terribly difficult process of recovering these victims and bringing them uh, to the coroner's bureau for examination and for ultimate release uh, to the family members. The coroner's office is charged with determining the cause and the manner of death. This process is ongoing and we will not be able to make those determinations final until toxicology results are in and the investigation into the cause and origin of the fire is complete. The Sheriff's Office will not be releasing the passenger manifest in whole out of respect for the families and in order to allow our investigators to make proper next of kin notifications. However, we do intend and will release the names of victims after we have positively identified them and have notified their next of kin of that positive identification. As of this press conference, we have been able, through the DNA process, to positively identify 18 of the victims. In nine of those cases, we have been able to contact and notify the next of kin of the victims. And those nine, I will release the names to you right now. Those victims are Raymond Scott Chan, aged 59, of Los Altos, California. Justin Carroll Dignam, 58, of Anaheim, California. Daniel Garcia, 46, of Berkeley, California. Mary Beth Guiney, 51, of Santa Monica, California. Yulia Krasinaya, 40, of Berkeley, California. Alexandra 
Kurtz, 26, of Santa Barbara, California. Caroline McLaughlin, 35, of Oakland, California. Ted Strom, 62, of Germantown, Tennessee. And Wei Tan, 26, of Goleta, California. This list is representative of the diverse makeup of the passengers and crew who were aboard the Conception on that fateful day. They were from our local area and from throughout California, from across the United States and from around the world. Their tragic loss has devastated countless family members, loved ones, friends, and colleagues. We mourn their loss and we want to assure those who they leave behind that we will continue working tenaciously to recover all of the victims, to determine how they died, and to investigate the cause of this terrible fire and loss of life with the hope that future such tragedies can be prevented. And now I'd like to bring up to the podium Captain Monica Rochester of the U.S. Coast Guard. You're listening to a news conference live from Santa Barbara about the dive boat fire from early Monday morning right here on KFI. Rochester, Captain of the Port Coast Guard, Los Angeles, Long Beach. This past week, the Unified Command has visited with the families of the victims and have seen firsthand the impact that the tragedy has taken upon them. And our hearts and thoughts are continuing to be with them as they, they go through this terrible, terrible tragedy. Yesterday, the Unified Command, which consists of the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office, Santa Barbara City Fire, Santa Barbara County Fire, National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, National Park Service, National Marine Sanctuary, came together to review a salvage and recovery plan of the motor vessel conception. This is an important step to this process, but I would like to be clear that the Coast Guard's role Coast Guard's role during this salvage and recovery operation is for the safety of those on scene during these recovery operations, as well as the safety for the environment. Salvage operations can take some time. It, it is a very uh, exacting, tolling process on the folks that are on scene. Uh, the divers that have to assist in, a, in the continued assessment and rigging of, of the vessel. So it, it's not a hurry up and lift and be placed on the barge. It's an incremental effort to make sure that we, we try our, our deliberative best to keep the vessel intact for further, uh, further investigation requirements. We will also continue to monitor the operation to provide uh, updates as necessary as, as they become um, rev uh, prevalent for us to, to do so. And at this time, I'd like to go ahead and transition over to um, Chief Hardwick for the Santa Barbara Fire. Thank you, Captain Rochester, Mark Hartwig, Fire Chief and Fire Warden for the County of Santa Barbara. We started this week by committing our resources and those of our partners throughout the state to rescue any potential survivors of this tragedy. We then continue to commit our resources to recovery 
and recovering the victims, uh, family members of this tragedy. And then I made the commitment to do any and everything we could to find the cause of the fire and the origin of the fire. I want to uh, first and foremost thank our partners to the south, uh, Ventura County Fire Department, who upon notification of the distress call uh, off the coast of Santa Barbara and Santa Cruz Island, responded immediately with multiple assets. As we commit to finding the cause of this fire and the origination point of this fire, I promise that we would leave no stone unturned. We have uh, joining us in the investigation uh, formally now the what I would consider the A-team for cause and origin, really uh, one of the best teams throughout the world, the national response team from the ATF. And I'm going to go ahead now and yield to uh, my colleague from the uh, uh, ATF. Good morning. My name is Carlos Canino. I'm the uh, special agent in charge of the Los Angeles ATF field division. Um, before I say anything, um, I will not be taking any questions. I'll just be talking about the national response team and, and their capabilities. So, uh, and the reason for that is um, right now, until they get on the scene and uh, we have more information, um, anything that I would say would be speculative. So, I do not want to do that. So, uh, first off, uh, on behalf of uh, ATF Director Regina Lombardo and the men and women of ATF, we'd like to express our condolences to all the victims and their families. Um, our hearts are with them and our thoughts and prayers are with them, um, and we stand behind them. So as you might know, ATF is a federal agency with jurisdiction and expertise and resources to investigate large and complex fire scenes. Uh, ATF brings a unique expertise in the investigation of fire incidents, and we share this expertise with our, our federal, state, and local uh, partners, as well as fire services. Um, ATF has been on scenes since, uh, since Monday. Um, in consultation with the Unified Command, um, it was agreed upon that uh, the best course of action, or the next course of action, I should say, was to bring the, uh, the resources of ATS National Response Team. Um, they're arriving today, some already here. Um, they'll be arriving today and ready to go to work um, this evening. So our NRT will be uh, working alongside the men and women of the Unified Command, and our primary role is to determine the origin and cause of this fire. Uh, the NRT is comprised of senior ATF special agents, certified fire investigators, forensic mapping specialists, explosive, explosive enforcement officers, fire protection engineers, electrical engineers, forensic chemists, um, and other professionals. Um, 
when I was coming uh, on my way up here and I was talking to our bureau headquarters, um, I asked for a list of who, who was, which agents were going to be on the team, uh, and I was doing some quick math. Um, just for the agents alone, uh, there's over 250 years of experience in investigating fires. Um, so the team that's coming here to, to assist and try to get to the bottom of this uh, tragedy is, is exceptional. Uh, like I said, at this time, it's, it's too early to tell what the cause of the fire is. Um, and again, uh, it's imperative that uh, uh, I don't speculate or anybody else speculate and until, until we get a look um, at the boat. Um, and hopefully that'll be some time in the next few days. Uh, in complex investigations like this, where there's, where there's a large loss of life, uh, we take our time process all the evidence and uh, we don't put time limits on how long we're going to be here. We'll be here um, as, long, as long as we're needed. And, and again, the goal is to determine what the origin and cause of this, of this fire is. Um, I, like I, I spoke to our director uh, and she uh, told me that all the resources of ATF uh, are available for this incident. So, thank you very much. Good morning. My name is Suzanne Grimacy. I work with the County of Santa Barbara Department of Behavioral Wellness. We have together joined hands and hearts and made it through an incredibly difficult week. I feel both honored and humbled for the opportunity to have made connections with so many of the families who had loved ones aboard the Conception. I will cherish the stories which have been shared that describe family members, hearing of their passions held for diving and for the underwater world the Family Assistance Center closed on Wednesday evening. The center opened as a place to get information, resources, and counseling support. But it turned into so much more. It turned into a gathering spot for families to spend days together and share their stories with one another and gain support from one another. When we learned upon closing that new families would be coming to the area later Wednesday evening, the decision was made to open the doors hosted by Red Cross at their office site. On Thursday, with the same resources available, again, families joined together and were able to support the new arrivals to town. Today, families will again have the opportunity to join together and support one another throughout the day with mental health and spiritual support available as we await this evening's vigil. A vigil will be taking place tonight at 6.30 at Chase Palm Park. The vigil offers a time for community to come together to show support, to grieve, to receive the support of others, but above all, an opportunity for us together to honor 
the 34 lives which were lost on the conception. There are no words that can heal the pain that is being experienced by so many at this time. But we can be there for one another. I hope everyone that can will consider joining tonight's vigil at 6.30 at Chase Palm Park and beginning our journey together towards healing. Thank you. We're happy to take questions at this time, but just uh, in an effort to keep our questions clear and organized, please raise your hand, wait to be called on, and when you are, state your affiliation and your question and who the question is for specifically, and we'll bring that person to the podium to answer that for you. And I also just want to start by saying, as the sheriff mentioned, this is an ongoing investigation, and there are just some things that we're not at liberty to discuss uh, as far as the investigation itself. So please remember that when you're asking your questions. Probably two two questions, one for the sheriff and one for Captain Rochester. So in response to your first question, uh, the investigations that are underway, and I, I emphasize investigations because there are multiple agencies investigating multiple aspects of what happened during this tragedy. Um, we are looking to determine what happened. And uh, a criminal element to that is always a possibility and is always something that we uh, would want to make sure that we have uh, evidence for and that we investigate. But uh, at this point, no one has been charged criminally, and we are proceeding uh, alongside our partners. And uh, the people who have been brought in have been brought in for a reason because of their specific expertise in, in specific areas. The NTSB with transportation-related disasters, the ATF, because this uh, was, was fire, the ATF national team is probably the world's foremost in terms of investigating uh, fires. Uh, we want to make sure that we investigate every aspect um, of this. So it has not turned into a criminal investigation at this point. It is an investigation that is looking into all uh, related and associated elements to uh, the terrible tragedy. And then I'll let uh, Captain Rochester ask, answer the uh, question on salvage. I'm, I'm sorry, can you repeat your question? Okay, so the question was, uh, winds are offering a challenge to this operation. Am I characterizing that correctly, sir? Uh, that is a, a, a big consideration. We, we are monitoring the weather patterns um, very deliberately. Uh, the forecast beginning later on this afternoon has winds increasing to about 35 knots, which puts uh, the salvage uh, in a precarious situation. They have thresholds um, that will go beyond um, the comfort of their safety level for the folks that are actually participating on site during the salvage operation. So what, if that comes to that, to where uh, the vessel has not been placed on board the barge at that point, I will make that determination that we will suspend, ensure that the vessel is appropriately anchored in consultation with the National Park Service, in consultation with the National Marine Sanctuary, 
and uh, put the the barge and the uh, tug in a safe haven and we'll wait for those winds to die down again those are forecasted through the rest of the weekend all right we're going to pull and away here we will be monitoring this question and answer period coming out of santa barbara all the latest about the conception disaster they did say in this press conference that the salvage operation of that vessel is underway they have recovered 33 of the victims and connected with all of the families. Yeah, they said that they have, of those 33, identified just over half of them, 18 people identified. Um, nine of the ones who's who have been identified have had their families notified as well. And just those of those nine, we got an idea just how wide-ranging the, uh, the passenger manifest is going to be. People from all over the state of California, but also from Tennessee, the, uh, the sheriff there of Santa Barbara County referred to People, uh, family members living in Singapore and Japan. So there is a uh, there is a worldwide impact of that fire that took place early Monday morning. There was some preemptive legal action that the owners of the boat have gone ahead and moved forward with in the courts. We'll talk about that and what it means for the victims in terms of payouts when we come back. Also an update on Hurricane Dorian as well. Gary and Shannon will continue. Shannon, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app on this Friday. It is September 6th. Started the show listening to that news conference out of Santa Barbara. The latest information about the dive boat fire from off of Santa Cruz Island very early Monday. They are still looking for one final victim. The uh, sheriff in Santa Barbara County, Bill Brown, suggested that uh, today, as they begin the salvage operation and maybe even moving that hull of that ship off of the off of the bottom of the ocean that they may be able to get into areas uh, that they can't get into right now. And there's a good chance, he's hoping, that they will find that uh, 34th victim, the body of the 34th victim. The owners of the boat have turned to an old maritime law to argue that they should not have to pay any money to the families of the victims. This was a petition filed yesterday. Attorneys for owners of Truth Aquatics... Glenn Fritzler and his wife, Dana, cite an 1851 statute in asking a judge to eliminate their financial liability or lower it to an amount equal to the post-fire value of the boat, or zero dollars. Now, some are calling this callous. Some are saying, how dare you go to court when not even all the bodies have been recovered, but this is what your attorney would advise you to do. Yeah. This just makes legal sense. And by the way, it, it's almost hypocritical to suggest that that would be a callous legal move. And then farther down in the story from the L.A. Times, they refer to some of the lawyers who show up to the makeshift memorials for the victims trying to get the family members of those victims to sign up with their legal firm to go after the insurance company or the boat's owners. Right. Steve Quitazal is the brother of a guy who died in the fire with his three daughters and their stepmom. And apparently this woman, Laura Rosales, told Steve that three families of victims had retained the law firm and she urged him to do the same. How do you do that? Well, 
I mean, that's the. That's, I mean, that's the business. That's the absolute definition of the ambulance chaser, isn't it? I mean, somebody shows up it's to disgusting. a makeshift memorial to then solicit business for the law firm. Daniel Rose is a veteran maritime attorney out of New York. He said if the victims had filed lawsuits first in state courts, they could be eligible for significant damages. So by filing this petition, the owners of Conception could be able to direct any future lawsuit to federal court and prevent those substantial payouts. It What it does is it brings all the claims into one court. Now, the petition still faces hurdles, and uh, it's not absolute that they that they will not have to face these payouts. But here's the thing. This is a couple that could easily have their life taken from them and bankrupted. They're not going to have the money. It's going to be interesting to see what the insurance company covers, what the insurance is on this boat. The the details about what happened very early Monday morning have begun to trickle out, and uh, sources have been uh, talking with different media organizations about what exactly happened very early in the morning. A a source familiar with the crew's actions, we don't know if this is law enforcement or if this may be National Transportation Safety Board, but a source that's familiar with the crew's actions talked to the LA Times and said that just hours before the fire broke out early Monday, the passengers had done a night dive. There was a crew member who was awake on the boat at the time, was supposedly straightening up items in the galley and the mess area, but went upstairs into the wheelhouse onto the bridge at about 2.30 at night. Now, before that crew member went upstairs, he checked the stove, made sure it was cold, made sure that there was nothing flammable out. Sometime between 2.30 and 3.15, the crew member heard a noise and thought somebody had tripped. And he went down to the middle level, and that's when he saw fire. The flames uh, flames prevented him from getting down into the galley. In the aftermath, of course, the crew had speculated that the fire may have begun in the seating area, in the galley area. But no crew members reported hearing an alarm sound. He heard no smoke alarm, smelled no smoke, and just saw those flames. Now, I I found this interesting as well. They said that there are smoke alarms, but uh, one of the... Uh, National Transportation Safety Board investigators Jennifer Hammondy said that the smoke alarm that was on the vessel is one that you could buy at Home Depot. She toured a similar boat, the Vision, that's another one of the boats in the fleet with Conception. She toured the Vision yesterday, uh, Wednesday, sorry, and said that one also had one smoke alarm, but that it's not wired to a centralized system. And I thought about this. In my house, for example, and I know that, I, I don't know when this became code, but in my house, all of the smoke detectors are wired together. That's why when one battery goes out, they all start chirping. And in this case, they're saying that there could be, you know, if there's more than one, if there's one or two or five or whatever, they're not connected to each other. So a smoke detector could potentially go off in an engine room or a compartment that isn't connected to any of the other smoke detectors. That doesn't make any sense on a boat. Well, sa- I would say it's... it. It makes some sense. I mean, it's not a gigantic space, but if you have the engine running, for example, or if you're listening to music and that smoke detector is somewhere away from you, it could be going off and you wouldn't hear it. Anytime there's compartments, you think it needs to all be connected. Uh, That woman also from the NTSB, Jennifer Homedy, says she was taken aback when she was on board the Vision on Wednesday by the size of the emergency hatch. She said that 
She and the investigators turned the lights off to see what it would have been like for the passengers trapped on the conception and that getting to the emergency hatch was difficult. They couldn't find the light switches in the dark. She said, you have to climb up a ladder and across the top bunk and then push a wooden door up. She says it was a tight space. We couldn't turn the light on. It surprised me how small it was and how difficult it was to access that she couldn't see the people in front of her. Another safety issue that has been talked about is it looks like there was no roaming night watchman who is required to be awake and alert passengers in the event of a fire or other dangers. The crew is saying that they did what they could. We talked the other day about you know, the five members of the crew who were able to jump off, according to other crew members, the captain himself was the last one off the ship. I mean, was the last surviving crew member off the ship, was doing what he could to send the mayday calls that we heard. And if you've heard some of the recordings from earlier in the week, there were a couple where the caller was complaining that he couldn't breathe, and that's believed to have been the captain that made those calls. So uh, Mollenbeck was out there. Andrew Mollenbeck was at this news conference. He's going to be talking to these people for most of the morning, and we'll get him on a little bit later in the show as well to give us some updates on what uh, what we found out today. Coming up next, Hurricane Dorian has hit the mainland. We'll get all the latest. It's just such devastating news coming out of the Bahamas. We'll get you caught up when we return. Gary and Channel will continue it. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640, everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Mandatory evacuation orders have been downgraded to voluntary for neighborhoods there on the outskirts of Murrieta. We will be going live to the scene where there are some private insurance agencies acting as firefighters, again, to protect property. We've heard of this before, where some people actually have that perk in their insurance policy where they will come out and do defensive space and the whole bit for your property in, in one of these in the event of one of these fires because all the other firefighters of course are busy so we're going to be talking to somebody who works for one of those companies to hear about all the details of that coming up after amy's news swamp watch at twelve thirty will include what we hope is the final chapter in sharpie gate uh the ongoing discussion about the maps and the briefings and whether alabama can't believe that people are wasting their time on this but let's just put a pin in that uh, we'll come back to it, and then um, and then we'll tear the pin away and uh, throw it in the garbage. Also, a government official says the administration is moving forward to revoke part of California's authority authority to set its own uh, automotive emissions and fuel economy standards. That the EPA is preparing paperwork for the White House that would set a single national standard for fuel economy. Well, it is dire news coming out of the Bahamas. People are shooting each other for food and water, according to one report. Government deployed extra security to the Bahamas' northern islands because there's been looting and aforementioned violence. Officials have ordered hundreds of body bags. I would be not surprised, unfortunately, if that number goes up. Because just based on some of the images and the the information that's coming out, this idea that there are 30 People who were killed, it seems incredibly low. They're not even at the stage of getting people food and water and clothes. They're still at the stage of getting people out of trapped dwellings. They're trying to evacuate people to Nassau, 
but the flooded airport runways are a huge obstacle. Up to 70,000 people are in need of life-saving assistance. To give you an idea, the media organizations that have been able to make their way into the Bahamas, most of them that I've seen, are staying at the airport. There's no place for them to go or stay. Um, I know we've seen a bunch of celebrity stories of people who have made it. Sean Connery's one of them. Uh, He said he's lucky that his mansion escaped. Oh, poor guy. That's That's not what I'm... That's not what I'm concerned about. There are, uh, this is the Caribbean. There are a lot of places on the uh, Caribbean islands, no matter what island it might be, where there will be shanty towns. And I mean just the most decrepit, low income, if there's any income at all, shanty towns with corrugated metal and trash all over the place. And there were a couple of those on these different islands in the Bahamas that are gone. They're just gone. Sandra Sweeting says you can smell the decomposing bodies as you walk through Marsh Harbor. There are a lot of people who are not going to make it off this island. Anthony Thompson says, I work part-time in a funeral home. I know what death smells like. There must be hundreds, just hundreds. Serge Simon drives an ice truck. He was waiting at the dock with his wife and two sons. Five months and four years old. He says it's going to get crazy soon. There's no water. There's no food. There's bodies in the water. People are going to start getting sick. This is one of those things where you're going to have to see very quickly, for example, in the, an aircraft carrier. We've seen that yeah. before where they can come in and provide some medical service, but most importantly, some energy and clean water. The United Nations has announced that they've bought eight tons of ready-to-eat meals says it's going to provide satellite communications equipment, airlift storage units, generators, prefab offices to set up logistics. But yeah, 70,000 people in immediate need of life-saving assistance. Bethany Frankel from The Real Housewives doing her part again. She she chipped in on her own when Puerto Rico went through its hurricane devastation. She says it's worse. She says it's much worse than Puerto Rico. And you know how dire that was. Yeah. Hey, the good news is, uh, for the most part, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina have escaped massive damage. There's still thousands of people without power. But in all honesty, I mean, even if Dorian made landfall over Cape Hatteras very early this morning, it's moved another, you know, 30, 40 miles or so offshore. It's picked up speed. It's going 17 miles an hour, moving to the northeast away from the United States. And right now it's at a Category 1, but it is diminishing and will probably be downgraded even to a tropical depression by later tonight. So that's that part of it is good news. And like I've been saying for the last couple of days, that means that some of the first responders and emergency personnel from those areas that were expecting to have to rescue people in the United States maybe make their way to the Bahamas and help out down there. All right, coming up next, an update on the fire near Murrieta. On Gary and Shannon. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640, everywhere on the iHeartRadio app, 1981, our flashback Friday year, because uh, I would argue one of the top moments in NFL history as we kick off the season was in 1981, that NFC championship game, sprint right option, Montana to Dwight Clark. Well, 
I mean, there are a handful of plays, perhaps, in the history of the NFL. And I, just not because we're from Northern California, but I mean, the Immaculate Reception. Sure. Um, we were just talking the other the night. Music about the Miracle. Music City Miracle. Music City Miracle. I mean, they're just, there's a few of those like that. You can you can see them post in your mind. to the post. But, yeah, let, let Lynch carry the ball. That wasn't, you know. Just give the ball to Marshall. Run the ball, Pete. Run the ball, Run the ball Pete. Those, th- those. There's a few of those, and that's one of them. I think it's got to be at least close to the top, especially because Vin Scully called the play. That was a magical moment. The madhouse at Candlestick. <laughs> uh, anyway, we were talking about the fire near Murrieta and about how mandatory evacuation orders have been downgraded to voluntary for neighborhoods there. Neighborhoods that have been protected by some privately contracted firefighters. Now, we've heard about this before, but the last time we heard about it, it was connection in connection with wealthy people that were able to secure these uh, private firefighters to defend their homes. But it seems like this is a more widespread practice now. Uh, Ken Kirk is a field supervisor for Firebreak Protection Services, one of these uh, by-contract fire protection places. And Ken is joining us right now to talk more about this. Ken, thanks for taking time for us today. No problem. Hey, um, who who pays your bills? I mean, are you are you employed by um, by private citizens, or is it municipalities or insurance companies that pay for you, or all of them? Insurance companies. All right. So, what is it that you? Three different insurance companies that pay for our services. And so when it comes down to some of the actual cases where you have to engage in firefighting, who do you have working with you? Are these uh, ex-firefighters? Are they uh, volunteer? How does that work? We, we haven't trained our wild card, red card certified firefighters, wildland, wildland trained. Um, they come on. A lot of them are that do work with us. They go through the academy. They're waiting to get hired on by the fire department. Fortunately, now they're the fire department is hiring, so we'll probably be losing some of them, but some of them enjoy working with us. I would imagine that you guys have a good relationship with fire agencies. I mean, that's more of a question than a statement, but how is that relationship? It's good. As long as we fire, follow protocol, check in on major incidents where they have a command post, we go there, check in, tell them where we're going to be. They have absolutely no problem with it. They need just they just need to know where we are and what we're doing. Are you in contact with the homeowners? Uh, how do you know when you're going to be dispatched? And is there contact with the people who own the home when when they are evacuated? When they're evacuated, no, we don't contact them. They they already know that we're most of them know that we're going to come. It's a free service to them. It's paid for by the insurance companies. We're just there to protect the home, the structure for the insurance company. We're kind of like their insurance policy. One of the things that I see on the Firebreak Protection Services uh, website is the the different um, systems where you actually keep FOSCheck on the property. You keep this fire retardant chemical on the property that can then be dispersed. Is that a that's you know that seems like a pretty high end uh, protection service that you guys offer. Yes, that that is. It can range the the you know on based on how big of a property the people have. Um, it's it can be high end, but it's also can be low end. It it 
just all depends on what the need of the customer is. And when that but, is, disp- I mean, with a system like that, is that just basically sprinklers that are placed out over the property, or is it just specifically on the house or the residence? We have different stages uh, depending on the intricacy that they want. We can put uh, sprinklers on the roofs of their, the homes that will, they could either have a water system or a class A foam system. They can have a fast check for the perimeter and, and water and, and or fast check uh, class A foam system on the roof as well. Um, there's just different ways that, that we do things based on the, the property itself and danger and fuel is around it. Do you see this business growing uh, because we are moving more, more so even uh, into wildland areas? Yes, we have. Well, after the Woolsey fire, well, actually the Tops fire started it all. Um, then after that, we got our phones just keep ringing and ringing. As more people, a lot of people inquiring about the systems. A lot of people want to, you know, about the fire, private fires uh, protection. But most we don't really do that. Uh, we we try to stay away from that. We were uh, more into. Uh, covering for our clients that we're hired on for now. Ken, uh, you're busy today. I'm the, I know that things are looking well in the Tanaha fire area, but uh, you got, I mean, I would imagine yeah. that even on a warm day, just to be prepared, you guys are busy. Yes, we were always doing some training. Uh, we monitor fires all day long. If uh, it's my call, if we get a fire, I, I map it. I'll look at how many houses we have that are going to be threatened by the fire. Uh, listen in on the scanners, see what the fire department's saying about it, and we'll determine. I'll make the determination whether we launch or not, based on that. All right, Ken Kirk, field supervisor with Firebreak Protection Services. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you so much. You bet. And that fire, again, is at 20% containment, burned just over three square miles. Looks like they're getting a handle on this thing as voluntary evacuations are the only ones that remain in place. Yeah, I I was interested to see that there's so many uh, non-renewals when it comes to fire insurance policies throughout the state of California, even in the event. I mean, listen, we've been lucky this summer that we haven't had massive fires that have been burning because, uh, and even, I mean, to his point, to Ken's point there, the Woolsey fire didn't burn until November of last year. So that's an idea we have to keep in mind that we're not out of fire danger, but up to this point, things have been relatively quiet. But even in, even after these last several uh, years of, you know, it seems like every year we were getting more and more acreage that burned, that there would be non-renewals in these high fire risk areas, more because the, insurance companies weren't going to renew than it was that the the customers weren't going to renew. All right. Well, imagine this. You are a young lawyer, three years out of law school, and you're handled, you're handed the Manson murders case. We're going to be talking to a prosecutor coming up next. That was his reality back in 1969. It's been uh, 50 years since the Manson murders this summer. Gary and Shannon will continue in just a moment. Gary and Shannon, 
KFI AM 640, everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Told you about it earlier. Hundreds of people have now gathered at a port in Abaco, Bahamas, and an airport hoping to get off that island that has been completely devastated. The death toll's at 30, but people on the ground say there are hundreds more, that there are corpses just piling up, unfortunately. You might uh, not recognize exactly who he was, but you know the name Robert Mugabe. Um, he took Zimbabwe with the promise of independence and left it shattered and in the grip of repression. Uh, well, Robert uh, Mugabe died today at the age of 95, two years after he was forced to uh, to give up power. Well, it was 50 years ago this summer that the Charles Manson murders occurred. And it seems like for 50 years as a country, we've been kind of obsessed with what happened in August 1969. We grew up in California. We were associ- I mean, associated with the story in that everybody we knew would ask us about it. Um, and having been born uh, just a few years after these Manson murders, it's always been a part of my life in terms of a fascination with crime, fascination with uh, with uh, court cases and things like that. But Stephen Kay was a prosecutor who was just 27 years old, just a few years out of law school, when he took over the Manson family murder case. And Stephen joins us right now, right here on the Gary and Shannon Show. Stephen, thanks for taking time for us. Well, thanks for having me. What was that like? Did you have any idea the enormity of this case and what it would mean all of these years later when you took this on as a young prosecutor? I didn't know it would last this long. It's a case that uh, that never ends. Um, and it was kind of like a, a circus. Fortunately, I had gone to law school at uh, Bolt Hall at UC Berkeley, and I, I was there during the free speech movement and the filthy speech movement. So I was kind of used to circuses. <laughs> and this was certainly uh, one of them. Uh, Manson uh, played right into our hands. Uh, we were trying to prove that he was the mastermind of these uh, murders and that his followers were slavishly obedient to him. And so in the courtroom, uh, every once in a while, Manson would uh, stand up and shout something. And then um, within a couple of minutes, uh, the three women would stand up and uh, and say the same thing. So it, it was clear to the uh, the jurors, I think, that, uh, that Manson was uh, definitely uh, the leader. And at one point, uh, some of his followers actually followed you out to your car. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, Sandy Good and uh, Squeaky from uh, Squeaky, by the way, is the one who tried to assassinate President Ford in a park in Sacramento in 1975. Um, they snuck up behind me uh, after court one day when I was walking uh, to my car and the parking lot at the corner of uh, Broadway and Sunset, um, and they said they were going to do to my house what what was done at the uh, Tate house. Um, my wife wasn't too happy uh, to hear about that, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't dwell on things like that. Manson threatened to kill me three times. Um, but I figure if anyone can kill a president of the United States, they can kill anyone. So I, I don't dwell on it. 
Uh, I take precautions. I'm always aware of my surroundings, uh, but I don't dwell on it. Did you, during the trial, because of those threats, did you have security, extra security from the Sheriff's Department or from the DA's office? I had somebody that was with me during the uh, the day. Uh, at the time, my wife and I lived in a uh, one-bedroom apartment uh in uh, Torrance, and my wife said, <laughs> we're not going to have uh, a DA investigator uh, <laughs> sleep in our apartment. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that was the extent of it. So the trial is over after nearly a year. Uh, it's Susan Atkins, Leslie Van Houten, and Patricia Krenwinkel sentenced to death. Later, of course, their punishment reduced to life in prison. Then Tex Watson had to get back from Texas, extradited, and you did that trial as well. And then Leslie Van Houten gets a new trial, and you did that as well. Uh, did this? Did these two nights of terror kind of define your 40 years in the DA's office, or was it not so much? Well, it certainly was uh, a big part, but uh, for a period of about 12 years, I handled a lot of the... Uh, major murder cases uh, in the DA's office. Uh, and, uh, you know, as bad as the, the Manson family cases uh, were, the worst case I had was the Bitteker and Norris case, uh, two ex-cons that uh, kidnapped and tortured and murdered uh, five teenage girls and actually tape-recorded one of the, uh, uh, the murders. Uh, and then... Uh, um, in 1984, I became a head deputy and um, ran uh, the Compton office uh, for years, the Long Beach office and the Torrance office. Um, and then uh, I went back uh, and tried a major case in uh 1996 the murder of linda sobeck who was uh, a former cheerleader uh, for the los angeles uh, raiders football team who was uh, tortured uh, to death by a uh, uh, high-end automobile photographer wow yeah hell, hell of a career there yeah <laughs> kept me busy yeah Stephen Kay has joined us, um, prosecutor on the Manson family murders and other cases. We'll come back. I wanted to ask more about uh, the ongoing. It seems like every couple of months we get word that someone is up for parole. I have breaking news. Yes, get to it. Antonio Brown will play Monday night for the Raiders. He get he got into the meeting this morning, and he was emotional as he apologized, and it worked. And this shows you that John Gruden has the trump card because he wanted him to play. I guess. Knock on wood. Knock, Knock on, on wood, wood if, if you're, you're with, with me. me. Um, oh, you! I have to tell you this story. There's a couple of things that we're following. First of all, Andrew Mollenbeck was at that news conference in Santa Barbara this morning, the latest on the, the dive boat fire from earlier this week. Andrew's going to join us in the 1 o'clock hour, give us an update on what was uh, what was discussed today. 
the Hurricane Dorian is now down to a Category 1 and is moving away from uh, North Carolina and Virginia, but it's still causing massive problems or has caused massive problems in the Bahamas that we'll check in on. And I have to tell you the story about my time in the elevator this morning, which was horribly embarrassing, and I could do nothing about it. God, I'll do that I love elevator minute. stories. All right, we are talking right now with retired Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay, who was just a young prosecutor when he handled the Manson murders trial. Uh, no, I, I didn't, but I trained somebody before I uh, I left, and uh, <laughs> that person's now retired, and then somebody else took it, and... Uh, uh, and then I think somebody uh, after that. But I, I was the first DA in California to attend a lifer uh, parole hearing. And uh, that's somebody uh, who has a uh, life sentence. And that was uh, the first hearing was Patricia Krenwinkel's in uh, uh, July of 1978. Now, uh, Manson and Watson and uh, the three women uh, all got uh, the death penalty originally, but then in 1972, uh, the California Supreme Court overturned uh, the death penalty. They held, held it was cruel and unusual punishment. So everybody on death row um, got their sentences commuted from death to life. There was no life without possibility of parole. And in those days, if you got a life sentence, that meant you were eligible for parole in seven years. And uh, so that's why I ended up attending 60 uh, parole hearings for the five Tate LaBianca uh, murder defendants. I was reading an article recently where Deborah Tate, Sharon Tate's sister, was talking about the unfortunate fact that it seems that Manson and his followers are the ones that are remembered more so than the victims. Yes, I think I think that's uh, true. Maybe not so much with Sharon herself, uh, but certainly with the uh, the others. Uh, I think that what made this case uh, uh, so famous, uh, my my theory on it, um, people in the United States, I think, like uh, horror films, uh, and uh, they seem to always do well at, in the theaters, and. In 1969, Life magazine put uh, Charles Manson on the cover of their magazine, and it was a crazy-looking picture of him. And so I I think people saw, oh, wow, this is a real-life monster, uh, somebody who can convince uh, uh, kids from uh, middle-class families uh, to go out and commit murder for him. And uh, so I, I think that's what set it off. And, uh, you know, it's, unfortunately, uh, it's kept going. Is it frustrating you to that end? Is it frustrating to you that so much of what surrounds the the Manson family murders, the Tate-LaBianca murders, and everybody that's associated with this, that it's taken on sort of a celebrity status that people forget the the gruesome nature of what it was that happened 50 years ago? I, I think it's really uh, sad that a lot of uh, um, the kids uh, nowadays uh, look at Manson as somewhat of a celebrity and they have T-shirts, uh, 
with Manson's uh, likeness on it. Uh, this w- w- was an absolutely horrible person. Uh, he he was a racist. Uh, he didn't allow any minorities in the family, uh, in his his family, uh, and uh, he would tell different people who could get together and have babies because he wanted the babies to have a certain look. And a lot of hippies came into contact with uh, Manson and the family, and they heard what Manson uh, was saying, and they hightailed it away from him as fast as they possibly uh, uh, could, uh, because the main thing that Manson would tell his family was that Adolf Hitler was his hero for what Hitler did to Jews in World War II. Um, Just a, a despicable human being. Do you think he's responsible and the family's responsible for more murders than the Tate LaBianca's murders? Well, uh, the murder of Gary Hinman, uh, which I prosecuted uh, Bruce Davis for uh, myself and uh, Anthony Manzella uh, did a joint prosecution on that. Davis was actually uh, Manson's chief lieutenant. So there's another one. And then the Shorty Shea uh murder Shay was a, a ranch hand uh on spawn ranch and knew that manson was up to no good and uh uh tried to get him thrown off the the ranch and uh um manson had uh actually participated in uh, uh killing Shay. now manson um never quite understood why he could be convicted of uh, the uh, the Hinman murder and um, the Tate and LaBianca murders uh, because he didn't physically participate in killing anyone. Uh, but in California, uh, we have the law of conspiracy and aiding and abetting, and if I direct you to go out and kill someone and pursuant to my direction, you go out and you kill that person, uh, you're considered uh, just as guilty as, as the person who actually did the, uh, the murder. But with the Shea murder, Manson physically uh, stabbed uh, Shea uh, and that was the, the one case he didn't want to talk about. Uh, but those nine murders uh, were the only ones that uh, we felt we had evidence uh, to prove. Manson one time uh, told a, a cellmate that uh, they were responsible for 35 murders, uh, but I don't know if that was uh, just jailhouse uh, bragging or if there are other victims, but if there are, I don't know who they are. Yeah, the LAPD officially has a dozen unsolved homicide cases they say could be linked to Manson. Robbery homicide says that uh, these unsolved cases were still under active investigation as of 2019. So Stephen Kay, a prosecutor for the, for the L.A. County uh, District Attorney's Office, thank you so much for your time. Thank really you. appreciate it. Well, uh, thank you for having me on your show.
Uh, absolutely. Stephen, uh, Stephen K again, prosecutor there for a long time with LA County DA's office. I got an email from Christoph who said that there was a glitch at the beginning of the interview said it sounded like you asked a question. Then he said, no, because there's a section where I asked a question right after you introduced him. I asked him a question if he was still doing parole hearings after he retired. But he said it sounded like you asked him if he was a prosecutor on the Manson case, and he said no. And that's not what happened. I'm sorry. I don't know if I hit the dump button or what happened. But All right, coming up next, we will hear... Oh, my God. This is the stupidest story. I can't wait. I love stupid stories. I was... I was in the elevator. Elevator etiquette is so weird to begin with. Remember when Ken got into a fight? Well, this was almost like that. Oh. I mean, this leads up to the same. The 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 lead up is very similar. Oh, I'm excited. Uh, all right, we'll talk about uh, elevator etiquette and why I'm yet uh, again considered the D in the entire building. Oh, I'm gonna love it. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. I saw a great meme this morning. It says, if you feel bad about your NFL team, just remember that the Bears traded up to take Trubisky over Patrick Mahomes. (laughs) That was kind of a boring show last night. Well, it's week one. Nobody plays in the preseason, so offenses are sloppy as hell. Yeah, it was just, well, the final score was 10 to to 3, was it? Yeah. That's just a... (laughs) <laughs> That's not what they were hoping for. I know that. Bears D looked good. Uh, hundreds of people have been gathering at this port and the airport in the Bahamas trying to escape the island devastated by Hurricane Dorian. They're saying that international aid efforts have been gaining momentum, but the numbers are pretty staggering. 70,000 people in need of the basic basics, like food and water basics. The death toll right now is only at 30, but it will go up. And unfortunately, it could go up into the hundreds. Also been watching Hurricane Dorian as it continues to move off the coast right now of North Carolina, still about 30, 40 miles off the coast after it made landfall Cape Hatteras earlier this morning. And uh, at this point, really just causing inconveniences for the most part along the coast, uh, the East Coast, just some flooding, power outages, winds, etc. No significant deaths, although there were a couple of people who died, I guess, in the preparation for the storm. I am a bad person. I'm starting to think more and more. Tell me what happened. Came up the stairs from the parking garage and a woman blew past me. She's in a rush. Yeah. And we come in. It's not a huge walk from the parking garage to the lobby into the elevators, but we get into the elevators and there's two guys in there before she enters. One guy pushes the button, peels off, and I'm going to do this from the perspective of the elevator. I'm in the elevator. He's, he goes front left. Everybody's got their segments when you walk into an elevator. Mm-hmm. Second guy goes in. He goes he goes rear left. Okay? okay. Woman in a rush comes in. She goes front right, which is where the panel is. Yeah. And is feverishly pushing the button. Just I can hear it clicking. And then I walk in. And you've got to use your key card. Yes, but she's on the same floor. Oh. So she's feverishly pushing the button. I turn around to take my position, which is just basically center of the box, right? I'm right smack in the middle because I don't want to get too close to her and make her uncomfortable. And I'm not going to stand next to the other guys because of elevator etiquette. Yeah. So I'm standing dead center in this elevator car. And she's pushing the button as fast as frantically as she possibly can. And she turns to us and she says, I'm sorry, guys, I have a meeting. (laughs) Which is fine, except 
Another woman enters the lobby from the hallway. Uh-oh. And makes eye contact with the one person in the elevator that she can see. You. Me. Because she can't see guy front left. And until she comes over into the other, she can't see the guy rear left. She can't see the woman front right who's frantically pushing the elevator button to close the doors because she's late for a meeting. Oh, boy. And this woman, casually strolling towards elevator car two, looks directly at me as the doors start to close. And you don't make any motion for that button, do you? I freeze! I freeze. Oh, Gary. Because I can't... She's late for a meeting. And this woman is just casually strolling to the elevator. She's going to make us all late, although only one of us is already late. And she says, as the elevator doors are closing, she says to me, because again, I'm the only one she can see, well, that's extremely rude. Whoa. And, and then, boom, the doors close. Oh, my God. And we go, up, we go up. Oh, my God. That is how your day started? You know, the funniest part about that? That's this woman terrible. is frantically in a hurry, right? Frantic. The elevator stopped on every single floor before it got to ours. <laughs> Murphy's Law, man. Murphy's Law, absolutely. And I thought, uh, I'm the one who looks like an a-hole. Did you know either one of those women? No. Well, that's good. At least you got that going for you. But she works here. Yeah. And she had a meeting well, here. Well, that is extremely rude. But the, Oh, it was. And then it, that was soul-crushing. Because I didn't have, I didn't even have an opportunity to go. It's not me. She's the one who's late. Right, right. Or it's not me. That guy could have pushed the button. It's so crazy that you have all these experiences because you're truly one of the nicest people. But it, but it, you come off like one of the worst humans when I, you're here. <laughs> I hope that an indication that I'm not a bad person is that you feel bad about I it. I felt so bad about it. Oh, and the woman in a hurry. She. Everybody in the car, her in the elevator car. Heard the woman say that. Oh, well, that's extremely rude as the doors close. She didn't even say anything to me as we get out of the elevator on the same floor. She goes one way and I go the other. She didn't even say like, well, sorry about it. It made you look like the a-hole. She Nothing. No. Nothing. She's I'm late for my meeting. I'm that's sorry. a bad way to start the it day. It is a bad way to start the day. It was like yesterday when everyone told me I was a bad person in the newsroom. Well. You know. It's kind of like that. Kind of. <laughs> All right, we'll talk trending when we come back to Gary and Shannon. Home in the valley. Home in the city. Home isn't pretty. Ain't no home for me. Home in the darkness. Home on the highway. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640, everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Coming up in Swamp Watch, one of the big stories come out, out of Washington is Sharpiegate. Yes, story is lingering. Turns out it was the president who was the one who marked up that map with the Sharpie. What? Can we promise each other that this is the end of it? If we won't bring this up again. Yes, I mean, it is noteworthy, but it's not a shocker. It's not shocking behavior coming yeah. from somebody who needs to be right. <laughs> Uh, also, next hour, Andrew Mollenbeck is going to join us. The latest on the Conception fire, the fire that burned on that dive boat uh, off of Santa Cruz Island from Monday. Also, Jason Nathanson from ABC News is going to join us. We're going to be talking about uh, It Chapter 2 opens up this weekend. And it is, they're talking about the, could be the highest earning horror film, at least in its opening weekend ever. All right, here's what everyone's talking about. Time for What's Happening. Wow. 
Medical examiners believe that the dozens of people trapped when Conception, the diving boat, caught fire did die of smoke inhalation, not burns. The Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown held a press conference earlier among other authorities and said that uh, all the victims sleeping in tight quarters below deck had signs of smoke inhalation. And a preliminary examination shows that they did die before being burned. They did identify, or I should say they released the names of nine people that they've identified. They did identify nine others, but they're waiting to make sure that they can contact next of kin. Uh, and those people, the nine people they identified today from all different parts of of California, but also from Tennessee, they mentioned that some of the people on board may have been from Japan and Singapore as well. So potentially, uh, like the sheriff said this morning, families around the world that have been impacted by this uh, this disaster. Hurricane Dorian did not do too much damage here, but it is a different story in the Bahamas where the devastation is just now being reported. They're saying there are corpses in the water there. There are corpses stacked on top of each other. There's looting and violence as rescue teams still work to free people who have been trapped for days. They're not even at the food and water point of the of the operation they're at the let's use chainsaws to get people out of whatever's left of these dwellings part of the operation what do we do in disasters we look for heroes i'm going to mention one of them and thank you to uh to gary for emailing this to us guy walked into a florida costco and bought 100 generators forty nine thousand two hundred eighty five dollars and seventy cents Peas, beans, peppers, uh, coffee, salt, other essentials uh, made up the rest of his purchase from a Costco in Jacksonville, Florida. And he's going to send it all to the Grand Bahamas or to the Bahamas, Grand Bahama Island. That's good. Mandatory evacuation orders have been lifted in connection with that fire near Murrieta. It's now about 2,000 acres. It did threaten hundreds of homes, prompted the closure of some schools there. It is 20 percent contained right now. That's good news, especially considering our temperatures are going to go down a bit. Our uh, our humidity may go down, which is going to make it feel drier. That's not great news for the fire, but uh, weather is definitely a, a big factor when you're fighting these things. So the CDC came out today and said that a third person has died from an e-cigarette-related lung illness, and another death is under investigation. They said to stop using e-cigarettes. Because people have been dying, Indiana, Illinois, and Oregon. And then this afternoon, L.A. County health officials came out and said they're investigating the death of someone from the use of e-cigarettes. Yeah, they are going to hold a news conference locally here sometime this afternoon and talk about this. There's been discussion a lot in the last, what, two weeks, it seems. And one of the things that they're looking at is vitamin E acetate in marijuana vaping devices that may specifically be linked to this uh, deadly lung illness. So that they at least have a, uh, a clue maybe headed down the right way to figuring out what is doing all of this. Yeah, they say 12 people in L.A. County have this illness associated with vaping. Hey, there's a mechanic uh, for American Airlines that uh, has apparently tried to sabotage one of the flights. He was upset about stalled contract negotiations and wanted to earn overtime fixing the airplane that he broke on purpose. Bad move. Abdul Majid Maruf Ahmed Alani admitted during an interview yesterday that he did tamper with a navigation system on a plane before a flight in the middle of July. He will be charged with willfully damaging or disabling an aircraft 
He had been working for American Airlines since 1988. It happened when an American jet was scheduled to fly from Miami to Nassau. 150 people on board. Pilots power up the plane at Miami International, and they see an error message for a system that tracks speed, nose direction, other, you know, critical flight information. Sure. And when mechanics took a look, they found that there was a piece of foam glued inside a navigation system part. (laughs) And video showed a person who drove up to the plane, got out, spent several minutes working around the apartment, and that person was identified as a mechanic. Wow. He literally glued foam foam into the thing to screw it up yes it's not the smartest uh, smartest tool in the shed there antonio brown in the news because the raiders have forgiven him for his outburst and his uh what would you say uh verbal barrage of the gm mike mayock up yeah. there in oakland that his, happened his yesterday yeah i'm gonna punch, I'm gonna you, in punch you in the face all of that called him a cracker did he really yes and John John Gruden's okay with all well, of that. Well, John Gruden gets to make the final call. The fact that he's playing on Monday night is proof that John Gruden's word matters more than Mike Mayock. If if Mike Mayock d- did want him gone, I don't know that for a fact. I mean, Mike Mayock is the one who engineered the deal to get him from, from Pittsburgh. But you knew Gruden wanted to play with that toy. Yeah. You knew he was going to have a hard time letting that go. Play with that toy. It's a good way to put it. Knock on what if you're with me. Hey, guess what? You know what that means? This is week one of the NFL season. We haven't done this in a while. Oh, Fantasy Foreplay is back. Our gas Fantasy Foreplay is back. We'll pick some games. Oh, we're going to have fun. We're going to talk trash to each other. And nobody has any idea because week one is a crapshoot. Absolutely. Hey, don't forget the LA Chargers regular season kicks off on Sunday as well. What is that? The 8th already? The 8th of September. Indianapolis Colts at Dignity Health Sports Complex in Carson. Kickoff is at 105. Right here on the home of the Chargers. KFI AM 640. Bolt up. the checkout. I mean, it was nice to see him back. Brett Favre is looking like he's looking old. The well, Swirsky brothers looked like yeah. they hadn't aged a bit, but uh, Brett's definitely put on some time. Brett Favre, remember the incident with the cell phone? The <laughs> Anthony Weiner type incident? Yes. Unfortunately, that tarnished his image for all me right. a little bit. Was, uh, selling all kinds of stuff. Gary and Shannon Show, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Top of the hour is when Andrew Mullenbeck is going to join us. The latest update out of Santa Barbara and the uh, the boat fire that happened on the Conception just outside of uh, Santa Cruz Island. They're still looking for one body, and they're hoping that today when they start to move the hull and begin the salvage operation, maybe they maybe they find... Uh, that that last victim of that fire. Well, the NFL's 100th season kicked off last night in Chicago with a contest between the Bears and the Green Bay Packers. A lot of history between these two clubs. Not a lot of offense between these two clubs last night because nobody plays in preseason anymore. And so week one becomes a little bit sloppy. And that's what we saw. I wonder if we're going to see that a lot this week. Yes, we will. Like I can guarantee it. Scores of 13 to 7 and yeah. 10 to 3 like last night. That's interesting. I didn't Defense shines in week one. Hey, this is what we do, though, during NFL season. At uh, about 12.20 every Friday, we're going to do our Gas Fantasy 4 play, where we pick four games, and then we have to go through and pick the winners. Now, we picked four simply because 
well, for the alliteration of the foreplay, but also because it's really hard to pick four games, even just four games, and to pick them perfectly. So what we'll do is we'll go through, and the four of us will pick here. Oh, is your dad going to call? Your dad? Oh. Ray, are you excited as hell for football season? I am. <laughs> well, it's He's cool. a lot more excited now that Jimmy G's knee is in working order. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, Ray is Shannon's dad, and because Shannon is horrible and potentially has a conflict of interest by doing the sideline reporting for the Chargers, she's not going to be picking. Yeah, I mean, she I may mean, give some guidance. Listen, I learned a lot from the Pete Rose story, all right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, Ray, you're really the genius behind the team that you make up with your daughter, okay? All right. All right, so here we go. Thank you can you. play along as well. If you go on Twitter, you can follow us. Uh, make sure that you use the hashtag GasFantasy4Play and tell us what your picks are going to be. All right, starting off, Nick, what are our games today? What's right. our first game? you got the Broncos at the Raiders. All right. Uh, Nick, in fact, I'll let you go first. I'll go with the Raiders. Okay. Jacob, you get to pick for Blake. Broncos, Raiders. Remember, AB is back. He's pe- he, he will be playing. I wasn't going to go with the Broncos, but let's go with the Raiders now. Oh, he's back. You changed it just because you found out he's back. I was going to do that, too. All right. Ray, your turn. Broncos, Raiders. It's good. Gruden wants to win. He has to win this game. So, Raiders. Excellent. I am going the other way, and I am going to pick the Broncos in that one, simply because I think the dumpster fire that has been the Oakland Raiders will continue. Dad has a good point. I mean, it's an AFC West showdown, and if you can't beat the Broncos, what are you doing? Well, he can't get out there and play. Neither your dad nor John Gruden. It's against the rules. Game two, Nick. Steelers, uh, Patriots. Steelers, Patriots. Jacob, you get to go first on Blake's behalf. Who do you choose? Defending champs, Patriots. Kind of have to. Ray, it's your turn. Steelers, Patriots. I'm going to go with the Steelers. Ooh, I like that. Mm. Go against the grain. I'm going Patriots. Nick? I will also go Patriots. All right, here you go. Game three. Game three, Colts at uh, your Los Angeles Chargers. Interesting. Ray, you're going to go first on this one. Colts at the Chargers. Do the right thing. Chargers. (laughs) Chargers. <laughs> I think that's. I think he nailed it. Uh, I also am picking the Chargers. The, the expectations are so high. Jacoby Brissett versus Joey Bosa and Melvin Ingram. Please, Some, someone's going to get hurt. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, Colts, uh, Chargers. Yeah, I'm bolting up and going Chargers. All right, and Bl- uh, Blake in the form of Jacob. What do you got? Uh, let me go with the Chargers. All right, everybody picks the Chargers. Chargers going to sweep in that one. And then our final game this week for the Gas Fantasy Four Play. Finally, we have the uh, Falcons playing the Vikings. And Ray, you get to choose first. Atlanta Falcons at Minnesota take on the Vikings. I take the Vikings. I like that pick because you know what? That is a coach dedicated to the run game, and you don't see that a lot with these young coaches. You saw it last night with the Bears. Mm. You know, you got to run the ball to win, people. Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, I just think in a dome like that, like they're used to playing, uh, I got to take the Falcons. Falcons are low-key super good. Super low-key super good. Nick, Falcons, Vikings. I'll go with the Vikings. All right, and then uh, Jacob for Blake, Falcons, Vikings. Vikings, and Thielen's going to have a really good big game. Awesome. All right. Now, this is how you can play as well. Tell us on Twitter what your four winners for those games are. And guess what? Somebody promised us that they're going to make T-shirts for our show. And if you win, we'll keep your name on a list. And, hey, maybe before uh, sometime in 2021, we'll get you a T-shirt. We should send an email about that. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody. Ray, thank you so much for your time. Good luck. Thank you.
for having me. Love you, Dad. Hi, Shannon. You're the greatest. Thank you. We all think so, too, Ray. You're a lucky man. (laughs) All right. Now, when we come back, we're going to get into Swamp Watch here on Gary and Shannon. KFI AM640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Jason on uh, on Twitter sent us a picture of him wearing a Pac-Man costume from 1981 for Halloween that is ma- that he made with his grandmother. 1981 is our flashback Friday year. Great, uh, great year for football. Great year for Dwight Clark. Great year for the 49ers. Ended up going really on to win where Super Bowl 16. That turned year. things around, became the team of the decade. It was also the year you were born. No. Wait a minute. I was born in 80. How do you then, you don't remember the catch? No. But I do have pictures of me uh, on that day. Oh, really? Wearing my 49er apparel. That's funny. And looking know. very happy. Well, you were one. Mm-hmm. 20 well, you hours know about World War II, but you weren't there. Wait, what? I'm just saying we can know about things oh, okay. that happened before Usually we were born. Usually you say when I know about World War II, it's an age joke. Oh. But I see what you're doing is you are unaging that. Yes. Got it. Hey, it's time for Swamp Watch. Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. Drain the swamp. Drain the swamp. Drain the swamp. Swamp Watch. Are we just going to put this story to bed right now? Yeah, let's do that. I Okay. Sharpie Gate is... This is the... We'll end it here, okay? It goes no further than this segment of this show today. Yes, the president altered a hurricane map to show Alabama possibly being affected. He did so with a Sharpie marker because this is a man who cannot be wrong. While speaking to the press on Sunday, the president addressed Hurricane Dorian and its potential impact on multiple states, including Alabama. Now, this is a spokesperson for the White House. The president's comments were based on that morning's Hurricane Dorian briefing, which included the possibility of tropical storm force winds in southeastern Alabama. Now, after that... Uh, the the National Weather Service in Birmingham, Alabama, dismissed the statement and tweeted, Alabama will not, capital N-O-T, not see any impacts from Dorian. We repeat, no impacts from Hurricane Dorian will be felt across Alabama. The system will remain too far east. Now, the sta- the spokesperson's statement came days after the president originally made the claim and as the storm was rolling up the East Coast through Georgia into the Carolinas as we see it today. On Thursday, the president shared those charts from way back at the end of August, August 29th and 30th, that indicated the areas where places in Alabama did have a small but a chance of experiencing storm force winds. Though these newer projections were later released, we knew the thing was going to turn right, was going to stay on the coast. Alabama was never going to be affected. 
when he stood when he sat there and got an update from FEMA and Homeland Security, he held up this little poster and he's like, "Oh, nobody notices that <laughs> the cone of uncertainty or whatever they wanted to call it has an extension on it that's not even white like the others. It's sharpied in. It's a black." He did it. He did it to prove that back in the day when they told him there was a small chance that Alabama could see tropical storm force winds, which was repeated, by the way, by the Alabama National Guard. Hey, be ready, just in case. But for some reason, he can't just move on and get and just forget. Yes, they were wrong. People stop. They can't stop bugging him about this. And he has since then posted on Twitter Map after map after forecast after map after hurricane cone every to show that event originally if several days ago there was a chance this thing flew across Florida and impacted the Gulf states like Alabama. Well, usually the field is much smaller at this point, isn't it? Historical data shows that candidates who are polling at roughly zero percent at this point in the campaign almost never win their party's nomination. So about 10 of those Democrats have little to no chance of winning, yet they're sticking around. Why? There was an article in the Washington Post about the DNC lacking power over its candidates. The Democratic Party doesn't want these candidates to continue. The Marianne Williamsons of the world, the Andrew Yangs of the world. But candidates have gained the ability to fund their campaigns through small donor donations, and they're using national and social media to broadcast their messages directly to people. And the DNC has lost its ability to force them out. So one of the remaining tools that the party has is, of course, debate qualification rules. But how is that going to hurt the party when there's still that many people on the debate stage? Because people in Iowa can't even pick these people out of a lineup. How does it hurt the party? Well, the chances of unseating the president. Uh, I think just because the there's an when you go into it, we get deeper and deeper into it with more and more people splintered across the this landscape that is these candidates. I think it's harder than to a few months from now after the Iowa caucuses, we get into the primaries, we get into California's primary in March. I think that that it's harder to bring those people back together to sort of consolidate around one or two or even three candidates at that point. Yeah. I, I think that's the harder thing to do. We saw that with the Republicans from four years ago. It was harder for people to go to to consolidate around what they would have considered a viable candidate. Because remember, regardless of whether you were going to support Donald Trump in March, April, May of 2016, there was still a lot of doubt that he was a viable candidate, especially going up against the machine that Hillary Clinton was the head of. Right. And remember, the polls were a mess. Right. And I, I think that was, I mean, they that argument itself may sort of, you know, prove itself based on what I'm saying in that we may not have assumed he was a viable candidate, but obviously he was. So I, I just think that it's it. it when you confuse people with too many choices like this, that that's a dangerous thing because then you have to turn around and try to consolidate everybody. Did you hear about the history between Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren? Ooh, I want to I saw that. I, I want to come back to that because that's an interesting look at how things work. Yeah. Yeah. In this process of say you got 20 people 
who's going to rise to the top and be the presidential nominee, but most important or secondary to that is who's going to be the vice president. Yeah, Biden once uh, thought about Elizabeth Warren as his running mate. We'll tell you the story. Well, that's condescending, isn't it? Well, it was 2015. It was a different time. it was a different time. Got it. Gary and Shannon, we KFI to- AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Do you think that listens to us? We need to something's figure listening something's to listening to us. We just talked about grapes, uh, Gary and I, for about five minutes. Did a whole thing about grapes. <laughs> it's a good thing that wasn't on the air. <laughs> I Why? mean, the grape thing. Oh, yeah, you know, well. Stimulating talk. <laughs> anyway. Uh, then all of a sudden, a pop-up ad on Gary's computer is from Ralph's for grapes. California organic red, green, or black seedless grapes. Shout out to Deborah Mark who brought us grapes. They were delicious. And I brought grapes today too. How does it know? Swamp Watch. All right, here you go. Uh, oh, I wanted to mention this, just that the uh, California version of Swamp Watch, the Trump administration sent a warning to state officials today stating that this uh, agreement that California made with car makers over tailpipe pollution might be violation, might be a violation of federal law. The EPA, uh, Department of Transportation, sent a letter to the California Air Resources Board that the framework agreement with four car manufacturers could be a problem could be inconsistent with federal law. Uh, they're arguing that California as a state does not have the authority under the Clean Air Act to set fuel economy standards in conjunction with the car makers. We haven't necessarily we haven't seen a, an official response yet from CARB uh, and the governor just said that the the Trump administration is trying to bully us around. So. Well, we talked about Joe Biden and his history with Elizabeth Warren. It looks like Joe Biden was thinking of challenging Hillary Clinton for the nomination in August of 2015. And he decided to schedule an important private secret lunch at his official residence. The lunch was with Senator Elizabeth Warren. He had an idea to have Elizabeth Warren as his potential running mate. The two met that day for more than an hour. No aides were present. Now, she had spent the previous 10 or so years attacking him and accusing him of selling out working class people to help his home state of Delaware and the credit card industry there. But Biden knew if he had if he if he had to take on Clinton, he was probably going to need a woman on his ticket. So the two have lunch, and then after that, Biden decides running running in 2016. And so does Elizabeth Warren. Decides against running. Yeah. Yeah. So when he decided not to run, he went ahead and, and called Elizabeth Warren and told her. It's interesting. They, they, they've never broken off ties, spent a lot of time in the Senate together. But like you said, they've not always liked each other. I mean, they've gone against each other quite a bit. This all started in the late 90s. Elizabeth Warren was getting a reputation as a pro-consumer person. Uh, She was an expert on bankruptcies and was lobbying against a bill that she said unfairly penalized working people, specifically working women, by making it harder for them to go to court to erase their debts via bankruptcy. Some Republicans did support the bill. And Joe Biden, they said, actually was somebody who supported the bill. 
uh, not a Republican, obviously, and that that became an issue between the two of them, between Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. She said that a lot of women gave Joe Biden a pass on all of this because he was one of the guys who led the fight to renew the Violence Against Women Act. So her argument is, okay, yeah, you know, he may be for you in this Violence Against Women Act, but when it comes to protecting your financial security or your financial future by making it easier for you to go to bankruptcy court, he's not so pro-woman now, is he? Yeah, the senators like Joe Biden should not be allowed to sell out women in the morning and be heralded as their friend in the evening. Uh Uh-huh. The Judiciary Committee, uh, he said in a Judiciary Committee hearing about 15 years ago, he had delayed passage of a bill at that one point to add protections for for women, including one that prioritized paying off child support and alimony obligations. And he said Elizabeth Warren was just trying to uh, hold creditors responsible for some other problems that would stress for poor families and that the real problem would have been the bad credit card interest rates, not a bankruptcy bill. So they kind of went back and forth at it. Now, let's take a step back from this. We are at a place now where we've got, even if you count the people who have already dropped out of the race, 24, 25 candidates on the Democratic ticket for the for the nomination. It's very likely that one of those people will be nominated as the vice presidential running mate for whoever gets the nomination. Sure. Uh, and there's all there's got to be discussions within those top three or four, maybe top five candidates. There have to be discussions going on about if we get the nomination, who will be our running mate? And I wonder if Joe Biden is looking at Elizabeth Warren as one of those people. Well, here's the thing. He defers to her. I mean, she really took him to task on on those issues. And in fact, kind of jokes about it. Like he saw her at the White House one time. She was working on financial regulations back in 2011, I think. And he says from a distance, he shouts over, there she is. There's the woman who cleaned my clock. And then he made another joke a couple years later when he was swearing her into the Senate following her 2012 election. He hugs her and her husband and and tells them it was the first time he was happy to see her. (laughs) And uh, he said, you know, you gave me hell. So He's validating the fact that she really was a was was somebody who nailed him down on, on some things. To that end, I wonder if there's also other things at play. I, I wonder if in the process of choosing a vice president, the qualities are different, like who, who you look for in a vice you've president. You've got to have a progressive. If you're Biden, you've got to have a progressive as your VP. I don't know if we're in a place right now in this country where a progressive is going to win the nomination just because there are there is a, a lot of people who are not that progressive. They're more moderate Democrats, too. Well, I mean, um, just, as an example, Donald Trump picked Mike Pence specifically exactly. because of his covering the bases when it comes to the evangelical. He needed vote. a God guy. Yeah. He needed a guy that will not even have an Amstel light if he's in the room with another woman. Absolutely. And that's what Joe Biden needs, because a lot of these people, they look at Joe Biden as a Republican, that he's too moderate, that, yes, he is in bed with Wall Street and all of that. And you put Elizabeth Warren in his group and some some suddenly you realize that she's going to be able to lean on him. He, She's going to have his ear. And so maybe you won't get everything you want done, but you'll get some of it done. Because it's Joe Biden, and he seems to be the kind of guy that it will uh, 
will bow down to some of those requests. That would be interesting to be in the room for some of those discussions, whether it's Biden's team, Bernie's team. Could you imagine who Bernie's looking for as a vice president? Elizabeth's team. I mean, just to be in the room and hear them discuss the different qualities that these different people would have and what they would bring to a ticket, what what bases they would cover. What? Who do you like for Bernie Sanders running mate? Pete Buttigieg. Really? The youngest. Absolutely. I think that would be a funny matchup. I would say Kamala Harris before her downfall. Like, uh, hey, it's it's I'd like you to meet Pete and his grandpa. I just feel like you need a little color on the ticket, and uh, Warren Biden is pretty Whitey McWhite. It's not the Whitey McWhitest, I think. It's not Bernie and uh, Bernie and Joe would have been. Oh God, no! White hair, white skin, white. No, that's everything. like a Muppets show. Jowls, good dandruff, lord, and little leather patches on their coats. You know how I feel when you say dandruff. I get an idea. Huge one o'clock hour coming up next. Gary and Shannon will continue. Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640 everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Looks like firefighters have made quick work out of that brush fire that looks like it burned about a quarter acre near Little Tahunga Canyon in the Lakeview Terrace area. Another fire popped up about an acre long, about an acre big there alongside the five in Castaic. But L.A. County jumped on that one and actually just canceled other units that had been summoned to the scene. And then we've got that fire burning near Murrieta. It is at 20 percent containment. Hurricane Dorian still off the coast of North Carolina. It did make landfall out over Cape Hatteras early this morning and then moved back out to the ocean. It's it's losing strength, gaining speed. All of that is good news for the people on the uh, on the East Coast. The problems are going to be in the Bahamas. We saw the death toll go up today to about 30, but now they're suggesting that it could go up significantly higher. Uh, one of the one of the reporters who's been in Grand Bahamas for a long time and made his way to Abaco Island today said, "You can you can smell the death. There are a lot of bodies there. Uh, and the thing is, it's still 85 degrees and warm and humid, and it's." There is a potential for this death toll in the Bahamas to reach several hundreds, if not a couple thousand people before this is all done. Well, we got an update on the Conception boat disaster that occurred this morning in Santa Barbara when we heard from authorities that said that medical examiners believe that all of the people that were trapped when that dive boat caught fire died of smoke inhalation, not burns. Andrew Mullenbeck was at the press conference, joins us now with more information. Andrew, what is the latest? Yeah, I think that takeaway really was the the big issue, and particularly you might say that it was something of a mercy because when you look at the pictures and the video of that boat on fire and you just thought of dozens of people being trapped in their bunks, possibly burned alive before the boat sank to the the bottom of the seafloor there, again, we were told today that the belief is that all 34 people who died died of smoke inhalation and uh, the Santa Barbara County Sheriff, he's also the coroner, uh, his name is Bill Brown, and he says there are not going to be further autopsies. The belief is that the, the victims uh, died uh, and that the burn damage to the victims was post-mortem and not anti-mortem. In other words, it occurred after death and not before death. He identified uh, 18 people so far who have been 
with DNA testing positively identified, but he even described how the process has been going to connect with family members from around the world. We're talking about everywhere from Japan to India uh, to Singapore. I will say that the majority of the people on board that dive boat were from California, but identifying some next of kin can be really difficult when you have to try to find a phone number uh, in countries around the world. Uh, what's happening today is divers are still at the scene because there is one body yet to be recovered. So 33 have been recovered, uh, one yet to be. Uh, this again is the Sheriff, Sheriff Bill Brown. By uh, raising or partially raising the wreckage that our divers will be able to access areas that heretofore have been inaccessible to them. So I guess uh, for the immediate future, they're almost done with the recovery phase when they get all the bodies and they figure out what to do with the wreckage. But this full investigation is likely going to take between a year and a year and a half. One of the other boats in this fleet owned by Truth Aquatics is called the Vision. And I understand that several investigators were on board that boat to look at sort of the similarities there. Is it an exact replica of Conception, do we know, or if it's is it just very similar? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I don't have an answer for you on that one. I can tell you that uh, even when the NT, uh, NTSB went in to look at similar boats, uh, they were surprised at how narrow and limited the exits were. That's certainly going to be a big component of this investigation to see what, if any chance, uh, these 34 people had to get out in the first place. Uh, one other component is, is going to be interesting, too, because uh, the Coast Guard says, and I'll play a cut here, uh, the Coast Guard was asked and responded to questions about was someone required, one of the crew members, required to be awake on this overnight shift. Uh, this is Coast Guard Captain Monica Rochester. Do the regulations stipulate that there's a requirement for a roving watch and to be awake at the time. I, I cannot quote the regulations verbatim. I can tell you the certificate of inspection articulated that there was a roving watch required for that vessel. So in other words, uh, the regulation says there was to be someone up and roving around through the night watch, and it's their understanding at the moment that no one was, that these crew members uh, jumped awake and you know the five of them were able to get into the water and, and save themselves. But that's going to be another key component of this. Were they following the rules that someone had to be awake on the night watch? I wonder if that plays into any sort of negligence argument and if it would rise to the level of criminal negligence. I would guess it would not. But And, and well, and prosecutors are already there from the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, Santa Barbara County DA's office. Uh, they're there uh, because obviously they w would never say at this point that there's a criminal investigation, but they're around looking for evidence to see whether there might be going forward. That certainly is a possibility. And then there's the civil component as well, again, with 34 people having died. Well, the idea that there wasn't somebody awake would, con would conflict with a story that appeared in the L.A. Times today. They had a source who told them there was one crew member who was awake and was doing sort of the safety checks of making sure that the you know the stove was but cold that was and... only until two thirty five or something, right? He said yeah. he went back up to bed at two thirty five. Well, he went back up to yeah, the bridge, and the or... fire happened about three fifteen. Huh. Well, this is uh, it, it's got to be frustrating for investigators. I mean, literally f trying to pinpoint the cause of a fire 
now in what's left of a hull of a boat that's been underwater for five or six days. That's I can't imagine what the that's why they have the best people on it. Andrew, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, sure thing. Andrew Mullen back there with the latest. Again, the uh, the conception went down Monday morning. Today was yet another news conference where they talked about they released the identities of the first nine people they've identified and have notified their family members that they've identified. Gary and Shannon. That is such a true statement. Conway and Bender would never have crossed paths. <laughs> Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Me and Conway, on the other hand, would probably still be friends because I'd see him at the track. I'd see him at the tables. I'd see him at San Manuel at 9 a.m. on a Sunday. (laughs) I'd see him at Costco with the family, maybe. Yeah. Do you think he does his own Costco trips? Oh, he loves them. I know he loves the depot. I know he's talked about it. Yeah, he's talked about going to Costco. A uh, couple stories we're keeping our eyes on. Of course, Hurricane Dorian continues to churn up the East Coast. Uh, no massive problems in the United States. The Bahamas is really the place that was hit hardest, and we'll see over the weekend. I don't think the news is going to get any better out of the Bahamas. Also, as we heard from Andrew Mollenbeck just a few minutes ago, the uh, fire aboard the Conception, the dive boat off the coast of Santa Cruz Island, still being investigated. And today there's a, they're working hard on the actual salvage operation to try to pull What's left of the hull up off of the bottom of the ocean and potentially, potentially find the other victim that's uh, still outstanding. Well, uh, man, this is going to be a big week for the movies. Uh, it Chapter 2 is coming out, and they're saying that this could potentially be the largest horror movie opening ever. Jason Nathanson joins us. Jason, have you seen the movie yet? I have seen the movie. Oh, oh tell me wow. more, oh, but not too much. Huh. Uh, uh. Were you uh, delighted? Were you... You're not going to be happy with me. Um, it was probably my most disappointing movie experience of 2009. Oh, no. I would have to say. Uh, for, for several reasons. And it, it's not because it's just a terrible trash fire. I mean, it's, it's... You can tell a lot of work went into this movie. They spent a lot of money on special effects, and they throw it all at you. It's just... It's kind of a mess. And at one point, I remember looking at my watch just kind of feeling bored, which is not good for a horror movie. And that, at that point, it was two hours in, and I had another hour to go. This oh, I didn't know it was three hours long. Yeah, this movie's just under three hours, which, you know, that's not a complaint in and of itself for anything. I don't care about the length of a movie. The Avengers did it, and it was fine. I didn't have a problem with that. But a horror movie particularly... It's all about rhythm, right? It's all about giving you some comedy, then giving you some scares. Uh, tension, and then relieving the tension. And after a while, that just gets exhausting. And that's why most horror movies are around, you know, 90 minutes, uh, under two hours. Uh, but for this one, I, I was never scared. Bill Hader is good, so there's some good comedy in there. Jessica Chastain isn't given a whole lot to do, and in the end, they find a reason to get her basically in a tank top and, and get that soaking wet. Um, so just another <laughs> horror movie cliche. And I just, I, it made no sense. And I'm, I'm willing to give horror movies, comic book movies, most genre movies, uh, uh, you know, you suspend your disbelief and you go, okay, just, you know, whatever happens, I'm not going to go, that's not plausible or whatever. But this one just, I, I didn't really understand what was going on, why it was happening, why certain people have certain powers that they don't, and it, it's just a mess. 
Well, I don't know what to say to that. I was expecting you to be more excited and happy about it and tell me how I much was, of a, a fan of Stephen King you were. And I was excited to go in it. And if you are a fan of Stephen King, I, I don't think this is much of a spoiler because it's been out there. He has a great cameo in it, so look out for that. Well, He's fantastic. Good. That's one of the high points of it. I heard uh, that he actually put together one of the scenes that they had not had in there, and I was just wondering if uh, if you've read about the scene, which one it was, if it was any good. Uh, no, I don't know which one it was. Yeah, because I, I mean, I've uh, I've held off on getting all the details on exactly what scene it, it is, but now I might go take a look. Um, okay, so a little advice, because I know a lot of people are going to go see it this weekend, and like you said, it's going to be, I, I don't think it's going to be the biggest horror movie, because last night... It opened to ten and a half million. It the the first one is the biggest horror movie of all time. That opened to thirteen million on its Thursday night preview. So it's it's a little behind that, and it's been tracking behind that. But it's the second biggest Thursday night of all time. So it's going to do very well, and we need a a, a big movie at the box office right now because we haven't had this will be the biggest opening since The Lion King, by the way. Wow, uh, which almost two months ago. I got to so, uh, uh, put a plug in for Good Boys. I saw it last weekend. It was hilarious. It's like a coming of age story for mm. these group of like twelve year old boys, and it. It's, it's so profane, but it's so funny. Yeah, I did not. I, I didn't like Good Boys either. Oh, wow. well, that's good. Then maybe <laughs> I'll love It Chapter 2. Exactly. And and this doesn't mean that you shouldn't go see it. Everybody has different tastes, and that's that's fine. I get that. And a lot of people are going to go see it this weekend. So, so advice for if you're going to go see it. First of all, don't drink a lot of liquids, obviously, because it's, it's, it's long. <laughs> Plan your fluids. Yeah, I so saw a lot of people get up at, like, crucial scenes. So, you know, that that's... Brush up on the last movie. So if it's been two years, so if you remember, don't remember, you know, read something. See the last movie if you can. But if you can't, go read it online because it's very referential to the previous one. So if you haven't, if you don't remember what was going on, you're going to want to know what was going on. And if you're a fan of the book, from what I understand, the ending is different. They changed a bunch of things. And this is, they, there's some key characters from the book that uh, didn't make it into this one because they had to pare things down. And even at paring things down, man, it's still long. Well, not that we're going to record this and play it back in any capacity, but do you have an expectation of what you think the opening weekend box office would be? Uh, based on last night and based on the predictions, I think it could get up over $100 million. Uh, the, the The tracking has it in the more in the 80 to 90 million dollar range i think there's been like like we said talked about a lack of these big movies a lack of big openings i think people have been waiting for something to go spend their money on so i think it get, could get over 100 million dollars this weekend all right and that but you said that would also be behind what was the original opening for- 123 million oh, for okay. uh, it, it in 2017 which was a record and still a horror movie record right jason thank you appreciate it all right, take care. Jason Nathanson there with the latest uh, on what we expect out of It Chapter 2 opening tonight. Guess he and I aren't going to go to the movies together anytime last soon. Night. Yeah, it sounds like you guys would have been fighting through halfway mm-hmm. through. All right, we got the nuggets in the oven. Wait, wait, wait a minute. He did like Below Deck Mediterranean. <gasps> I forgot to thank him for all of the, the brain cells I've lost <laughs> since he recommended that. Awesome. <laughs> Nine news nuggets you need to know when we come back to the Gary and Shannon Show.
<laughs> that commercial may go by the wayside, but that joke will last forever. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. We've been seeing a lot out of uh, Washington, D.C., you know, when Congress comes back into session, what's going to happen? And House uh, Democrats are talking about investigating the vice president's stay at the Ireland Hotel owned by the Trump family because it was, you know, far away from where Mike Pence was actually going to be visiting dignitaries, three hours away, something like that. And the explanation was, well, it's ready for security. I mean, we have a big security contingent that goes with us and Trump Hotel just happens to be one of those places that can handle us. They were saying that in the context of those hearings, they may subpoena. Yeah, you guessed it. Thought we'd never heard her name again. Stormy Daniels to come into Congress and testify. And the day that Stormy Daniels walks into Congress, I quit. I quit. You can't quit. You can't quit. Can I complain about it? Yes, you can complain. Well, I will it. do that. All right, let's jump into our nuggets with this honorable mention. Honorable mention. Not supposed to mention. I was going to mention it when the time was right. There's network policy not to mention it. It's been an honor serving with you all. Didn't I mention it? What an honor it is. Great and honorable Moses. So today we're holding auditions to become the newest member of Honorable Mention. I kind of feel like we should kick off the Nuggets with a Florida story every week. Just because to be nice? It just seems right. It feels right. Well, they are dominated a lot of times by Florida stories. In this case, a guy out of Fort Pierce, Florida. Uh, got drunk and was laying down on the uh, on the living room floor when she comes home from work. Um, this woman says that this guy accompanied her and her daughter to another home where he continued to be belligerent. And then on their way home, he grabs her hand, he pulls her arm, leans her in and gives her a wet willy. The daughter confirmed mom's account. He was arrested, charged with battery. He says that he was not drunk. <laughs> Here's number nine. Uh, number nine. I did nine plays if a cop's dirty nine times out of ten, his partner's dirty too. And I speak nine languages. I stay up till nine o'clock. Basically everybody at table nine. I feel ready to go another nine in. Niner. Did I catch a niner in there? Were you calling from a walkie-talkie? Just give yourself a what, Willie? Yes. Remember the Jeep? <laughs> the Jeep mystery? How did that oh, yeah. Jeep end up? In Myrtle Beach. In Myrtle Beach. Well, the owner is explaining it. And the explanation is somebody was a jackass. Uh, he let his cousin borrow it. Yeah, his cousin rides a motorcycle. And as you know, a hurricane was in town. <laughs> so he let him borrow his Jeep. And apparently he said that morning he thought it would be cool to go on the beach, take a quick visit video of the sunrise before the storm came up he went off a runoff well, i guess it's a i don't know concrete conduit i guess where water comes out to the beach it says he ran ran off of that because he was looking out the window and didn't realize it was in front of him his cousin called a bunch of people to try to help him get the jeep out of the sand and everyone said stuck. you're crazy there's a hurricane yeah. you dumbass <laughs> what's funny is the owner said yeah he avoided me for a good hour or two because he didn't know what to say and then police literally came to his house. Are you okay? You realize that your Jeep is in the surf? Oh, it is enough. It would be great if you could make a figure eight. A child is born every eight seconds. Listening to eight different bosses drone on about mission statements. Crazy. This story is a sign of the power of social media and what it can do for a business. Are you listening, China and Russia? Now is the time to invade. White Claw is 
running out of White Claw. They're working around the clock to increase supply given the rapid growth and demand. Sales of White Claw grew 283% in July compared to the same period last year. Last year is when I discovered White Claw. I haven't had it since. I do have three in the refrigerator from last year, <laughs> say, if anybody wants them. They're a year and a half old. <laughs> uh, but all of these seltzer-based drinks have been uh, expanding. I, my wife got a six-pack from the Henry's collection. Uh, there's a Bon and Viv. There's uh, Truly, all of them. Anheuser-Busch also launched a new line of spiked seltzer under the Natural Light brand. They're Nick, quite. that's for you. They're quite drinkable, and they don't... You know, they're not too strong. They're like the the percentage of a Coors Light. Yeah. And they taste like the cardboard that the box came in. The box? The can. Have you had a White Claw? Right now, I had three. <laughs> the seventh son of the seventh son. One was seven days. With the government. Sector seven. Five, seven. Seven a.m. Seven years of college down the drain. Seven. 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 Seven days. Seven oh, this is out of the box. Marysville, Ohio is where we're coming to you with this story. Police there want the public to help find something that's been stolen. Is it a watch? Is it cash? Jewels? Drugs? A car? No. No. Think bigger. A train? Smaller. A bread box? A roller coaster. Ah! Someone has made off with a roller coaster from the Union County, Ohio fairgrounds last week. It's a small coaster. It's geared for the kids. It's called a Go-Gator. We've all seen the Go-Gator, haven't we? The little oh, roller yeah. coaster that's a, you know, alligator. Fake alligator at the front. Mm-hmm. The ride is part of the traveling carnival. It fits on a trailer, and someone hitched that trailer to their pickup and drove off with it. It's a powerful little pickup there. It's a good ad for whoever uh, made that pickup truck. I got six. You got six. She got six. Uh, number six. See, there's six more weeks of winter. Why do you have a picture of me, a rabbi, and six drunken longshoremen? Why don't we just stick her in a nursing home closer to us so I don't have to drive six hours? Drink another six-pack. Number six. I love a lottery story gone bad, don't you? They all go bad, don't they? A married couple who won the lottery two years ago is now in jail because they were part of a burglary spree. Stephanie Harvell and Mitchell Arnswald won a half a million dollars in the Michigan State Lottery in 2016, but have been charged with single counts of second-degree home invasion. They broke into homes in broad daylight in several Michigan counties over the last two months. When we last caught up with Stephanie and Mitchell, Stephanie talked about how she planned on using the $500,000 to buy a house, a car, and save money for college for her daughters. What do you think, looking at the mug shots, what do you think these two spent the money on? I'm going to go with number one answer of meth. Or cotton candy soda. <gasps> yes. What's that stuff called? La, la, l- liver disease? I don't know. <laughs> liver disease brand soda. I mean, 500 grand just a couple years ago, and it's gone to the point where you're robbing homes. That's got to be drugs. <laughs> Come back. To the nine news nuggets you need to know. Excuse, excuse me, uh, excuse me, officer. That that lady is drunk. Classic case of the pot calling the kettle drunk. <laughs> you heard me. Gary and Shannon will continue. You you put a chair in front of the chair. Gary and Shannon. 
I don't know what it is about me. KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. John and Ken Show is coming up in just a few minutes, but we wrap up our uh, nine news nuggets you need to know. Stories that we didn't get to earlier in the week because, you know, important things. These are the less important stories, but just as fun. Here's number five. For five minutes! I have five rules. We begin bombing in five minutes. Five little monkeys. This is the year 5.5. Do me a favor and lose five pounds immediately. A woman in St. George, Utah, called 911 to report a possible drunk driver in Woods Cross. I think think that guy, think that guy's driving crazy. The caller was laughing and burping. Ah, that guy's driving crazy. The dispatcher thought that maybe she was intoxicated. What do you think I'm intoxicated drunk for? When uh, she asked for the license plate of the vehicle and the caller was trying to report that, the caller gave her own license plate. Seven for Mary Edward Henry. She was laughing uncontrollably on the phone. <laughs> I could listen to you be drunk all day. No, you couldn't, because I would fall asleep. Here's number four. Four minutes. He's probably on his fourth tranquilizer by now. Commandment number four. There goes the fourth amendment. This isn't the same world you left four years ago, sir. Well, there's a upstanding woman in Des Moines, Iowa. She's a mom. She's a wife. She's an attorney. And now she wants you to know she's also a prostitute. I mean... Okay. I like sex, she says. Okay. I'm not going to read the rest because then Brian's suits will isolate it and use it as a drop. <laughs> and you're lucky the music's playing yeah. underneath it. Um, she said she began working as a prostitute three years ago at the age of 27, travels to Nevada where the prostitution is legal. Um, she says, you can make a job out of this? That's fantastic. Why would I not do this? Uh, really? Seriously? She asks, why would I not do this? She uh, says some people see it as a morality issue, but she sees it as a right. Can I ask a question? Yes. Can you break down this paragraph for me? While working in the brothel, she starts her day with three hours of prep in the morning between showering, <laughs> black soap, exfoliating, washing and drying everything. Well, if you're a prostitute, if you're a hooker, you've got to silkwood scrub yourself every day. I mean, I can understand a three-hour scrubbing if you're sleeping with strangers in a brothel in Nevada. How many clients a day? Does it say? Yeah. I don't want to know. I kind of want to know. She says between no. No. 10 no. and 15 no. clients a day. No. Between 10 and 15. That's too much whoring. Way too much. Okay. Don't, don't degrade women just because she's expressing her sexuality. No, we're not doing that. Oh, okay. Number three. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. They were dead within three hours. I almost called you a name. Security clearance level three. Do you know which name? Three. I got a bunch of names. The rest of your natural born lives. After about three days, they both start to stink. Three. Well, this woman didn't help the unemployment uh, rate. Now 3.7%. We found that out today. She quit her job so that she could dumpster dive. Women are crazy. Wow, this whole series of these stories. Did you put that in, on purpose? Women are order like getting that? drunk and calling 911 on hey. other drunken women. Texas woman quit her full-time job. She says she earns $17,000 a year dumpster diving. 
She used to make a living working in social media, decided to quit and dedicate all of her time to finding salvageable items in the garbage. She admits to even using toothpaste from the trash. I feel like there's a line there, and that's crossing it. But I don't know. I mean, if the cap's on, why not? She and her husband, she's married. She and her husband spent the first five months of their marriage living out of van while traveling out around the country. Isn't the prostitute married, too? Uh, yes. Yes. Um, this woman says she admits the task was a bit easier when they lived in California. Slim the, pickings out there. The majority of our food was from dumpsters when we lived in California. Number two. What's going on, you two? Pick out two fingers. One, two. <laughs> there are two people in this house. There's two sons and no women. Two ringy dingy. China, the time is now. <laughs> Knock it's on time. wood if you're with me. Knock on wood if you're it's with time me. to invade. We will go down without a fight. <laughs> we'll be too busy making out with chickens. All you got to do is put some lipstick on them chickens. We're all going to die. The CDC has actually put out a warning to people not to kiss chickens. There were 235 cases reported in the last month of salmonella from people raising their chickens and kissing their chickens. Poultry advi- owners are advised to wash Jesus. their hands thoroughly after handling birds Mary and, and not to, quote, kiss backyard poultry or snuggle them and then touch your face or mouth. Mm-hmm. Wait until you feather them and cook them. Then you put them in your mouth. Oh, but if that's not your speed, here's number one. We're number one. You're a number one. We're number one, Ben. That's all that counts. I decided to look out for number one. Are you the number one? <laughs> Row number one. Number one. Uh, number one. So yesterday we had a story about Pete Buttigieg talking about climate change and saying that if you eat hamburger, you're part of the problem. Part of the problem. That pissed me off to the tune of me stopping on my way on my way home to eat a hamburger wrong with you well it's ridiculous mayor of fort wayne indiana said something you gotta now we've got a scientist in sweden who says in order to tackle climate change we should start eating human flesh little modest proposal it sounds like madness magnus soderland believes this could be a genuine solution to climate change and says we must be awakened to the idea of eating human flesh in the future. No, this is ridiculous. Oh. John John just came in, and he'll support my argument. Did you hear about Pete Buttigieg and what he said at the climate change town hall about if you're eating hamburger, you're part of the problem? <laughs> I didn't no. make I, so I didn't make it home yesterday without stopping and eating a hamburger because it pissed me off. So I much. had two yesterday. Good for <laughs> you. And two the day before. I enjoy being part of the problem. Yeah, I'm going to be a bigger problem. <laughs> I know that is madness. I heard the uh, about the uh, uh, the cannibalism thing. Yeah. Uh, however, you do, can't. Do you instinctively look around to see who you think would be tasty in the office? No, but now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> wow. You, you know what? I don't think I've ever thought of that. Yeah. You want the larger ones because mm. the fat has the. Uh, oh, has you, the, the, has... you want the meat marbled? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's mm. always a better steak. Well, if you were going to make jerky out of somebody, though, you'd. <laughs> You'd pick somebody like Nick. He's probably got some, yeah, some, that's you know, pretty tough. Long stringy muscles. <laughs> yeah, there's not wow. a lot of. Not well, you, a just, lot of... you season it right. It's probably going to be glorious. Well, yeah. you season anything right, it'll be glorious. Sure, you could always cover up. What do you guys have arm. coming up? Today? Uh, well, uh, in an hour, uh, Andrew Malbeck's going to come on about uh, the uh, boat company hiding behind a law from 1851, <laughs> so they're not liable financially for the fire.
Did they literally blow the dust off a law book and take that into court? <laughs> yeah, who knew? I mean, there's a reason it's on the books. Right. It, it should have been taken off the books a long time ago, but that is the law. There's right. a whole field yeah. of maritime law I did not even know existed. Yeah, and it's yeah. all in those old books. It sounds back like. back in the days where there was no, there weren't, there was not insurance for, for boats, boats. Yeah. so you didn't want to put the companies entirely out of business. All right, John and Ken up next. We'll see you tomorrow Monday. Stay dry, everybody. Blessings. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to Gary and Shannon? And then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness.